2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Since the launch of this series a few months back, we've brought you conversations with some of the leading thinkers of our age. This week's episode is a little different. We're going back in time to hear voices that will never ever be forgotten. From Elizabeth I to Muhammad Ali. For one very special night at the How To Academy. Best-selling historian Simon Sebag Montefiore and journalist Hannah McKinnis brought together a stellar cast of actors to deliver the greatest speeches from history.
3: Good evening, it's wonderful to see so many of you here choosing to spend your evening with us. I think that you're making a very good decision. I can say with certainty, you're in for a real treat this evening. Um, I am delighted to have already taking photos of the audience. Simon Sebag Montefiore here with us, and that he's chosen to share his book, Voices of History, this evening. It is obviously the inspiration for our event. It's an extraordinary collection of speeches delivered by a truly incredible cast of characters. Some you would expect great orators, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill, some not so great you might not expect, um, Donald J. Trump makes it in. All of them offer an extraordinary window, a really illuminating window onto history. Um, and we found it very hard to select our 14 for you this evening. But I hope that we will be taking you back and forth throughout the ages uh, with a variety of subjects war and power, race and gender, and a whole lot in between. And I can't quite believe that we've managed to assemble, despite their grueling filming and rehearsal schedules, the most dazzling array of actors. I'm just seeing you all here, I can't believe that you all made it. Um, Please join me in welcoming Jason Isaacs, Papa Essayedu, Jayda Nuka, Natalie Emanuel and Kate Phillips. Just before we start with our first speech, I just want to ask Simon about the book and a little bit about the power of speeches and why you chose to assemble this collection together.
4: I think we're we're in a time when we really appreciate that our words have never been so important. The power of speech, um, the need for discipline, the need for respect and the danger of hyperbolic uh, expression have never been more clear than they are today. So, th- this book and, and this, this event is really meant to be a celebration of the power of exquisite oratory, exquisite writing, and, and an exposition of the real danger of, of the word when it's used for darkness. And we're going to see speeches from both sides of good and evil um, tonight. And I just hope, you know, the, the, mess- the lesson for younger people of this book is really just like, you know, w- words can destroy worlds or they can save lives, they can save civilization. And that's what we're talking about today, and that's why I chose these speeches, all of which somehow changed the world. And as you said, you know, there are the most beautiful, poetical, wonderful and exquisite speeches here. Some of them are the greatest, some of the greatest pieces of actual prose ever written, and there are others that are so vile and disgusting, um, it will shock you that they're even in an anthology. You'll see what I mean when you look at the book.
3: Do you think that in the internet modern age, speeches thrive or are we seeing the great oratory die out?
4: Well, we used to th- you know, it used to be that we thought of oratory and rhetoric as a sort of something in dusty books about uh, Pericles and Cicero. But actually, in the age of 24-hour news and podcasts and video clips on Facebook and, and Twitter, um, speech-making has never been more powerful. It's instantly seen by millions of people. While Henry V or Alexander the Great, their speeches were probably only heard by about 500 people. Hitler's were on the radio and Churchill's were on the radio. Now they're on 24-hour news. And we've seen from the presidential campaign Donald Trump's speeches, for example, and they sure did change the world, by the way. Um, we've seen just how even, even terrible speeches, in a way, and he can be strangely compelling and can change and move minds so that's that's the lesson of this of this of tonight i hope
3: what do you think is the essence of,
4: of a brilliant speech authenticity i think i mean obviously there's brevity there's beauty of phrase but there's and there's theatricality of course i mean the key thing about a speech is that it feels it feels and looks like a performance but it has to be authentic and for that, the speaker has to have a sense of his time, his place, and what his audience wants. And those are the key aspects of, of any speech. But, I mean, in this time, you know, there are very few good speech makers at the moment. There are some great communicators like Donald Trump, but there are very few people writing really beautiful speeches. But there are some, and some of them we're going to hear tonight.
3: Just the last thing I'm interested in is, you say writing and obviously there's the writing, but what actually are the characteristics of a great orator?
4: Um, I think the great great things that are needed are grip, discipline, knowing your audience, uh, and, and, and projecting an idea with great simplicity. Winston Churchill said, you know, when you give a speech, you should just repeat over and over again the idea with a big whack so people get the message. And you'll hear in one of his speeches, which are about here, I think, he uses the word "victory," "victory," "victory" repeatedly. So there's an example of a maestro of speech making. And some of these speeches are masterpieces, by the way. So we're in for a treat, I hope. Thank you for doing this, guys. By the way.
3: So we'll start with the first one. Well, I think, but the Elizabeth um, the First. Right.
4: Well, you know, this is one of the, Elizabeth the First is one of those great speeches. The interesting thing about her is that, along with. Um, people like Winston Churchill, and Adolf Hitler for that matter, she wrote her own speeches. She spoke many languages, she was, she was highly intellectual, she knew the classics. And she wrote down these speeches herself. And it shows, I mean, they are beautifully written. Um, when she gave the speech, Britain was in a, a moment of great danger. The Armada was coming over to invade Britain. Um, and we really didn't have much of an army to resist it and she went to see the army at Tilbury, the militia that they'd gathered, and she gave this amazing speech. What's clever about it is, as, as in all wartime speeches, she turned the disadvantage of being a woman without much of an army into an advantage. And that, that's the clever thing about the speech, apart from the beautiful phraseology in it, the beautiful language.
5: My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful for our safety, to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore, I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation or disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and the stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade my borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I, myself, will be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you in the word of a prince, they shall be duly paid you. In the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject. Not doubting by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp and your valour in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, my kingdom, and my people.
3: Sneak preview there. Um, The next one is another, of course, great war speech. Winston Churchill.
4: Well, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister on the 10th of May, 1940, and he really took over at a time more desperate in British history than at any other other point throughout our chronicle. And um, three days later, he came to the House of Commons and he gave this speech. He wrote his speeches himself, scratching out the words um, and rewriting them, just as his direct contemporary, Adolf Hitler, dictated his speeches. To five secretaries at the same time. Their ways of speaking were complete opposites, too. Hitler sort of spoke theatricality. Churchill just duly gave his speeches, but it worked. It worked brilliantly. And in this speech, he's just, his aim is simple to totally reduce expectations. The situation couldn't be worse, and all he could offer was that it would get worse than it already was. But in the end, he only had one policy victory,
6: victory, victory. On Friday evening last, I received His Majesty's commission to form a new administration. It was the evident wish and will of Parliament and the nation that this should be conceived on the broadest possible basis, and that it should include all parties, both those who supported the late government and also the parties of the opposition. I have completed the most important part of this task. I now invite the House, by the motion which stands in my name, to record its approval of the steps taken and to declare its confidence in the new government. The resolution is that this House welcomes the formation of a government representing the united and inflexible resolve of the nation to prosecute the war with Germany to a victorious conclusion. To form an administration of this scale and complexity is a serious undertaking in itself. But it must be remembered that we are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history, that we are in action at many other points in Norway and in Holland, that we have to be prepared in the Mediterranean, that the air battle is continuous, and that many preparations, such as have been indicated by my honorable friend below the gangway, have to be made here at home. In this crisis, I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at any length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make allowance all allowance for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength.
3: Delighted to see this next one um, that Natalie's going to read for us. Perhaps you can tell us why you chose to put Chimamanda's speech into.
4: Well, the book. I love her novels, and you know, Half a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, um, Americana. I think mean, they're just wonderful books. So, so I already was, was a huge fan of hers. But when I read this this podcast and listened to it, I realised that there is hope for speeches after all, and that you know, it's not all about um, populist. Demagogues um, screaming uh, hatred and hyperbole. There's also great opportunity with the modern uh, technology to give really beautiful speeches that are really constructive and measured and beautifully written. And so, this is an example of that. And I think it's one of the best examples. And Natalie's now going to read it.
0: Not long ago, I wrote an article about being young and female in Lagos. And an acquaintance told me that it was an angry article and I should not have made it so angry. But I was unapologetic. Of course it was angry. Gender as it functions today is a grave injustice. I am angry. We should all be angry. Anger has a long history of bringing about positive change. But I am also hopeful because I believe deeply in the ability of human beings to to remake themselves for the better. We spend too much time teaching girls to worry about what boys think of them. But the reverse is not the case. We don't teach boys to care about being likable. We spend too much time telling girls they cannot be angry or aggressive or tough, which is bad enough, but then we turn around and either praise or excuse men for the same reasons. All over the world, there are so many magazine articles and books telling women what to do, how to be and not to be in order to attract or please men. There are fewer guides for men about pleasing women. Gender matters everywhere in the world. And I would like today to ask that we should begin to dream about and plan for a different world, a fairer world, a world of happier men and happier women who are truer to themselves and this is how to start. We must raise our daughters differently. We must also raise our sons differently. We do a great disservice to boys in how we raise them. We stifle the humanity of boys. We define masculinity in a very narrow way. Masculinity is a hard, small cage, and we put boys inside this cage. We teach boys to be afraid of fear, or weakness, or vulnerability. We teach them to mask their true selves, because they have to be, in Nigerian-speak, a hard man. But by far the worst thing we do to males, by making them feel they have to be heard, is that we leave them with very fragile egos. The harder a man feels compelled to be, the weaker his ego is. And then we do a much greater disservice to girls because we raise them to cater to the fragile egos of males. We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful, otherwise you will threaten the man." If you are the breadwinner in your relationship with a man, pretend you are not, especially in public. Otherwise, you will emasculate him. But what if we question the premise itself? Why should a woman's success be a threat to a man? What if we decide to simply dispose of that word? And I don't know if there is an English word I dislike more than this. Emasculation. A Nigerian acquaintance once asked me if I was worried that men would be intimidated by me. I was not worried at all. It had not even occurred to me to be worried, because a man who would be intimidated by me is exactly the kind of man I would have no interest in. Still, I was struck by this. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I am expected to make my life choices, keeping in mind that marriage is the most important Marriage can be a good thing, a source of joy, love, and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage, yet we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or accomplishments, which in my opinion may be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way boys are. If we have sons, we don't mind knowing about their girlfriends, but our daughters. God forbid. But of course, we expect them to bring home the perfect man for marriage when the time is right. We please girls. We praise girls for virginity, but we don't praise boys for virginity. And it makes me wonder how exactly this is supposed to work out, since the loss of virginity is a process that usually involves two people of opposite genders. We teach girls shame. Close your legs, cover yourself. We make them feel as though by being born female, they are already guilty of something. And so girls grow up to be women who cannot say that they have desire, who silence themselves, who cannot say what they truly think, who have turned pretense into an art form. The problem with gender is that it prescribes how we should be rather than recognizing how we are. Imagine how much happier we would be, how much freer to our truer individual selves if we didn't have the weight of gender expectations.
3: The next one I don't know if people would be familiar with, but it's a wonderful speech. Tell us a little bit about this one before Papa well, reads it. Muhammad
4: us. Ali is of course one of, the, you know, one of the greatest sportsmen that ever lived. Uh, the greatest boxer that ever lived. He started off as Cassius Clay. He became involved in the civil rights movement. Um, he, he defied um, the Vietnam War. But really, um, he, was, he was the greatest boxer that's ever lived. And um, and in these, tra- well, this was, at the time, this was called trash talking in the press. Now we'd sort of call it a mixture of sort of we'd call it poetry, really. We'd call it a speech. And he prepared and wrote these speeches that he gave before the big fights. And this is one of his best. And I think I think it makes him one of the great speechmakers of all time. So um, let's hear it right now. That would be great. Thank you.
7: Um, I just want to preface by saying this isn't my Muhammad Ali impression. (laughs) Just like focus on the words, you know. (laughs) Last night, I had a dream. When I got to Africa, I had one hell of a rumble. I had to beat Tarzan's behind first for claiming to be king of the jungle. For this fight, I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with a whale. i done handcuffed lightning and throw thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. Just last week, I murdered a rock. I injured a stone. Hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. I'm so fast, man. I can run through a hurricane and don't get wet. When George Foreman meets me he going to pay his debt I can drown the drink of water and kill a dead tree wait till you see Mohammed Ali
4: Perfect Beautiful
3: Brilliant, thank you very much. Uh, the next one is obviously one I think everyone is very familiar with, but it would be sacrilegious not to put this one in.
4: Absolutely, I mean, Martin Luther King, um, the champion of civil rights, the leader of the civil rights movement, um, a, a, a clergyman, and in this speech, you can hear two interesting things. One is the sort of Southern Baptist cadences and tone of a preacher. But also, what's fascinating about it is here he is, talking to this huge rally. I think there were like two or 300,000 people gathered in Washington. But this wasn't exactly the speech that he wrote. And he ad-libbed some of it. And in the speech, when you listen to the actual performance, you can hear that the singer who'd sung before said to him, like, tell him about the dream you had. Tell him about the dream you had. And so he talked about this dream he'd had. And so he actually was spontaneously um, extemporized And if you do that in front of two or 300,000 people, boy, you have to know what you're doing. Um, But he pulled it off, as we all know, and he turned the the repetition of I Have a Dream into one of the great hymns of modern civilization, I think. So, over to you, Jane.
1: Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And when this happens, and when we will allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village, and every hamlet, and every state, and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, we will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
3: We said at the beginning that some of these speeches are hugely relevant, scarily relevant today. This Oliver Cromwell speech, tell us a little bit about this, which I think might be my favourite.
4: Well, before we even come to Oliver Cromwell, of course, this speech has been used at key times of British history. In 1940, when Neville Chamberlain um, had clearly failed as war leader, the Tory MP, Leo Amory, stood up and pointing at him in the House of Commons Used the last words of this speech to tell him to go, in God's name, go. Um, one of the most sort of damning dismissals in British history. But to go back to the 1650s, Oliver Cromwell is one of the most extraordinary Englishmen who ever lived. A sort of military genius, a political genius. He virtually became king. Uh, he virtually became king in his own right. He became Lord Protector. He was offered the crown several times. And it was almost the beginning of the new dynasty. His son actually succeeded him as Lord Protector when he died in 1658. But at this point, one should also point out that he was also a religious fanatic who thought God was always on his side. When he was massacring Irish Catholics, he believed he was doing God's holy work and he was absolutely right to do that. Um, he also created the cavalry that destroyed um, and defeated Charles I. But at this point, this speech is when he's absolutely exhausted with the everlasting, long parliament. And he's gradually purged this parliament until he's left with a rump that he believes is loyal to him. And when he finds they're not, he loses his temper and gives this speech. The fun thing about it is, it's spontaneous. He walked into parliament and he, he just lost it. And this, Jason is going to show <laughs> us, is what happens when, that, when, a, when a man
6: loses it. It's high time for me to put an end to your sitting in this place, which you have dishonoured by your contempt of all virtue and defiled by your practice of every vice. You are a factious crew and enemies to all good government. You are a pack of mercenary wedges and would like Esau sell your country for a mess of pottage and like Judas betray your God for a few pieces of money. Is there a single virtue now remaining amongst you? Is there one vice you do not possess? You have no more religion than my horse gold is your god which of you have not bartered your conscience for bribes is there a man amongst you that has the least care for the good of the commonwealth ye sordid prostitutes have you not defiled this sacred place and turned the lord's temple into a den of thieves by your immoral principles and wicked practices ye are grown intolerably odious to the whole nation you were deputed here by the people to get grievances redressed and are yourselves become the greatest grievance your country therefore calls on me to cleanse this Orgian stable by putting a final period to your iniquitous proceedings in this house and which by God's help and the strength he's given me, I am now come to do. I command ye, therefore upon peril of your lives to depart immediately from this place. Go on, get you out. Make haste, ye venal slaves, be gone, go. Take away that shining bauble there, look up the doors. In the name of God, go. Thank you
3: very much. Um, again, another very familiar character. You've obviously included her. Tell us a little bit about this particular speech, the context.
4: Well, this is the speech that, I mean, Emmeline Pankhurst had been in jail. Um, she, had, she had led this uh, militant feminist uh, crusade to win women the vote in Edwardian Britain. And her comrades had thrown themselves under horses. Um, they'd, they'd, they'd attacked policemen. Um, they'd attacked Downing Street. And um, in 1913, she goes on this lecture tour of America. And there are lines in this that are absolutely essential to the feminist canon. She, she, she argues she's a soldier. And the irony of the speech, this, this, this tour that she gave in America, and you can see her here speaking, is that in fact, it's on the verge of World War I. When World War I starts, she stops her campaign um, out of respect for the war. And it's really the war, and not Emmeline Bankhurst, that actually won the rights of women to vote. So that's the irony. Nonetheless, here is one of the great speeches.
5: I do not come here as an advocate, because whatever position the suffrage movement may occupy in the United States of America, In England, it has passed beyond the realm of advocacy, and it has entered into the sphere of practical politics. It has become a subject of revolution and civil war. So tonight, I am not here to advocate women's suffrage. American suffragists can do very well for themselves. I am here as a soldier who has temporarily left the field of battle in order to explain, it seems strange, it should have to be explained, what civil war is like when civil war is waged by women. If I were a man and I said to you, I come from a country which professes to have representative institutions and yet denies me a taxpayer, an inhabitant of the country, representative rights. You would at once understand that that human being, being a man, was justified in the adoption of revolutionary methods to get representative institutions. But since I am a woman, it is necessary in the 20th century to explain why women have adopted revolutionary methods in order to win the rights of citizenship. Now, I want to say to you who think women cannot succeed. We have brought the government of England to this position that it has to face this alternative. Either women are to be killed or women are to have the vote. I ask American men at this meeting, what would you say if in your state you were faced with that alternative? That you must either kill them or give them citizenship. Women, many of whom you respect, women who you know have lived useful lives, women who you know, even if you do not know them personally, are animated with the highest motives. Women who are in pursuit of liberty and the power to do useful public service. Well, there is only one answer to that alternative. There is only one way out of it. Unless you are prepared to put back civilization two or three generations, you must give those women the vote. Now that is the outcome of our civil war.
3: Thank you. Um, and the next one, two that almost come one after the other. We're going to start with Obama. And this, I mean, it's no, no surprise why this made it in.
4: Well, it seems so long ago now, doesn't it? Um, seems like ancient history, but it was actually only, what is it? It's only sort of a few years ago. Um, so much has happened since. But, you know, here is, I mean, a man who, um, who really personifies oratory. And it's interesting with these speeches, when you listen to, say, um, Kennedy, or Martin Luther King, they both so base their speeches on those of Lincoln and also the classics on Shakespeare and the Bible. Um, Then you have someone like Obama who so bases his speeches on Martin Luther King on Kennedy. So, there there is a kind of genealogy of great speech-making which you can hear in these words. And um, here's a guy that could write his own speeches, that could write a brilliant autobiography with with no ghostwriter, um, a very literary guy. The downside of him, of this great speaker, is that of course he was no drama Obama. He was cerebral. Um, he was slightly chilly when it came to actually being president, and he had a mixed record as president. That's the truth. But these speeches that he gave, and especially this one, you know, really um, encapsulate the idea of the American dream and the idea of hope and positivity and optimism in public life. And so, this was the night of his. This was the night of his inauguration. This is, this is, and this is, I think, is his best speech. But he had. There's another one in the book too. But this is his best one, I think.
7: If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer. And to all those watching tonight from beyond our shores, from parliaments and palaces, to those who are huddled around radios in the forgotten corners of our world, our stories are singular, but our destiny is shared. And a new dawn of American leadership is at hand. To those who would tear this world down, we will defeat you. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. That's the true genius of America, that America can change. Our union can be perfected. What we've already achieved gives us so much hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. Now this election had many firsts and many stories that will be told for generations, but one that's on my mind tonight is about a woman who cast her ballot in Atlanta. She's a lot like the millions of others who stood in line to make their voice heard in this election, except for one thing. Anne Nixon Cooper is 106 years old. She was born just a generation past slavery, a time when there were no cars on the road or planes in the sky, when someone like her couldn't vote for two reasons, because she was a woman and because of the colour of her skin. And tonight, I think about all that she's seen throughout her century in America. The heartache and the hope, the struggle and the progress, the times we were told that we can't, and the people who pressed on with that American creed, yes, we can. At a time when women's voices were silenced and their hopes dismissed, she lived to see them stand out and speak out and reach for the ballot. Yes, we can. When there was despair in the dust bowl and depression across the land, she saw a nation conquer fear itself with a new deal, new jobs, and a new sense of common purpose. Yes, we can. When the bombs fell on our harbour and tyranny threatened the world, she was there to witness a generation rise to greatness and a democracy was saved. Yes, we can. She was there for the buses in Montgomery, the hoses in Birmingham, a bridge in Selma, and a preacher from Atlanta who told a people that we shall overcome. Yes, we can. A man touched down on the moon. A wall came down in Berlin. A world was connected by our science and imagination. And this year, in this election, she touched a finger to a screen and cast her vote because after 106 years in America, through the best of times and the darkest of hours, she knows how America can change. Yes, we can. America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there is still so much more to do. So tonight, let us ask ourselves, If our children should live to see the next century, or if my daughters should be so lucky to live as long as Anne Nixon Cooper, what change will they see? What progress will we have made? This is our chance to answer that call. This is our moment. This is our time. To put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids. To restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many, we are one. That while we breathe, we hope. And where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those that tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America.
3: Thank you very much. And then, obviously, four years later... ...we have our next... um, And you've included this speech, which I I, I should say that we we have cut some of the speeches. And this one we haven't necessarily cut because I think that the essence is in its length.
4: Don't worry, I I cut a lot (laughs) already. It was an hour long. I mean, he he spoke just at random and um, at length. And he meandered and um, he, had many, he had many kind of thoughts and obscure, obscure things came to him during this speech. But this is the speech that launched Trump's um, presidential campaign when he came down the elevator, um, the escalator in the, in the golden um, Trump Tower in New York and he launched a campaign. No one thought he was going to succeed as president. Everyone thought it was a joke. And he came down and all his presidency is in this speech, in fact. It's fascinating, it's all there in all its horror and chaos and, um, and 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 it's terrifying. And we laugh at him at our peril, because he rather like a cross between the Emperor Nero and Kaiser Wilhelm II, he, he is he is he is a buffoon, but he's also a terrifying, terrifying buffoon with ability as we see today in Syria at this very moment to cause absolute anarchy and, and to, to cause bloodshed across the world. So um, here we go, Jason, are you ready?
6: <laughs> that is some group of people, thousands, so, so nice. Thank you very, very much. It's really nice. Thank you. It's great to be at Trump Tower. It's great to be in a wonderful city, New York. And uh, it's an honor to have everybody here. This is beyond anybody's expectations. There's been no crowd like this. (laughs) And I can tell some of the candidates they went in, they didn't know the air conditioner didn't work. They sweated like dogs. And they didn't know the room was too big because they didn't have anybody there. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. Our country is in serious trouble. We don't have victories anymore. We used to have victories, but we don't have them. When was the last time anybody saw us beating, let's say China, in a a trade deal? they kill us. I beat China all the time, all the time. When do we beat Mexico at the border? They're laughing at us, at our stupidity. And now they're beating us economically. They're not our friend, believe me. But they're killing us economically. The US has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. It's true, and these are the best and the finest. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending the best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards and they tell us what we're getting and it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over the South and Latin America. It's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. But we don't know because we have no protection. We have no competence. We don't know what's happening. And it's got to stop, and it's got to stop fast. Islamic terrorism is eating up large portions of the Middle East. They've become rich. I'm in competition with them. They just built a hotel in Syria. Can you believe this, they built a hotel. When I have to build a hotel, I pay interest. They don't have to pay interest. Because they took the oil that when we left Iraq, I said we should have taken. So now ISIS has the oil, and what they don't have, Iran has. And in 19, and I will tell you this, and I said it very strongly years ago, I said, and I love the military. And I want to have the strongest military we've ever had. We need it more now than ever. But I said, don't, don't hit Iraq, because you're gonna to totally destabilize the Middle East. Iran is going to take over the Middle East, Iran and somebody else will get the oil, and it turned out that Iran is now taking over Iraq. Think of it, Iran is taking over Iraq, and they're taking it over (laughs) bigly. Last quarter, it was just announced our gross domestic product, a sign of strength, right? But not for us, it was below zero. Whoever heard of this? It's never below zero. But think of it, GDP below zero, horrible labor participation rate. And our real unemployment rate, it's anywhere from 18 to 20%. Don't believe the 5.6, don't believe it. A lot of people up there can't get jobs. They can't get jobs because there are no jobs, because China has our jobs, Mexico have our jobs, they all have jobs, but the real number, the real number is anywhere from 18 to 19, maybe even 21%. And nobody talks about it because it's a statistic. It's full of nonsense. Our enemies are getting stronger and stronger by the day, and we as a country are getting weaker. Even our nuclear arsenal doesn't work. Came out recently, they have equipment that is 30 years old. They don't know if it worked. And I thought it was horrible when it was broadcast on television, because boy, does that send signals to Putin. And all the other people that look at us, they say, that's a group of people, that's a nation that has no clue. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. We have a disaster called the big lie, Obamacare. Obamacare. Yesterday it came out the costs are going up for people, 29, 39, 49, even 55%. <laughs> and deductibles are through the roof. You have to be hit by a tractor, literally a tractor, to use it because deductibles are so high. It's virtually useless, It's virtually useless, it's a disaster. <laughs> so, I've watched the politicians. I've dealt with them all my life. You can't make a good deal with a politician. There's something wrong with you. You're certainly not very good and that's what we have representing us. They will never make America great again. They don't even have a chance. They're they're controlled, they're controlled fully by the lobbyists, by the donors, by the special interests, fully. Yeah, they control them. Hey, I have lobbyists. I have to tell you, I have lobbyists that can produce anything for me. They're great, but you know what? It won't happen. It won't happen, because we have to stop doing things for some people, but for this country, it's destroying our country. We have to stop it, and it has to stop now. Now our country needs, our country needs a truly great leader. We need a truly great leader now. We need a leader that wrote the art of the deal. We need a leader that can bring back our jobs, bring back our, bring back our manufacturing, bring back our military, can take care of our veterans. Our vets have been abandoned. And we also, we need a cheerleader. You know, when President Obama was elected, I said, well, the one thing I think he'll do well, I think he'll be a great cheerleader for the country. I think he would be a great spirit. He was vibrant, he was young. I really thought he would be a great cheerleader. He's not a leader, that's true. You're right about that, but he wasn't a cheerleader. He's actually a negative force. He's been a negative force. He wasn't a cheerleader, he was the opposite. We need somebody that can take the brand of the United States and make it great again. It's not great again. We need, we, need somebody, we need somebody who will literally take this country and make it great again. We can do that. And I will tell you, I love my life. <laughs> I have a wonderful family, they're saying, Dad, are you going to do something that's going to be so tough? You know, all my life, I've heard that a truly successful person, a really, really successful, even a modestly successful, cannot run for public office, just can't happen. And yet that's the kind of mindset that you need to make this country great again. So ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for president of the United States and we are going to make our country great again. It can happen. Our country has tremendous potential. We have tremendous people. A lot of people said, he'll never run. Number one, he won't want to give up his lifestyle. They're right about that, but I'm doing it. But they also, a lot of the pundits on television, they said, well, Donald will never run, he's one of the main reasons, because he's private, he's probably, he's probably not as successful as everybody thinks. So I said to myself, nobody's ever gonna know unless I run, because I'm really proud of my success, I really am. So a large accounting firm and my accounts, I've been working for months, because it's, it's big, it's complex, and they just put together a statement, the financial statement, just a summary, but everything will be filed, eventually, here. With the government. We don't use extensions, none of it. We'll be filing it right on time. We don't need anything. Here it is. And I have assets, a big accounting firm, one of the most highly respected. $9 billion, $240 million. And I have liabilities of $500 million, it's long term debts, very low interest rates. In fact, Let me tell you, one of the big banks came to me, they said, Donald, you don't have enough borrowings, can we loan you four billion? I said, I don't need it, I don't want it, I've been there, I don't want it. But in two seconds, they gave me whatever I wanted. So I have a total net worth. And now with the increase, it'd be well over $10 billion. And I'm not doing that to brag. No, you know, hey, I don't have to brag. I don't have to, believe it or not. I'm doing that to say, that's the kind of thinking our country needs. We need that thinking. We have the opposite thinking, we have losers. That's what we have, we have losers. We have people that don't have it, we have people that are morally corrupt, people that are selling this country down the drain. So, just to sum up, I would do various things very quickly. I would repeal (laughs) and replace the big lie, Obamacare. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me, and I'll build them. (laughs) Very inexpensively, I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. Nobody will be tougher on ISIS than Donald Trump. I will stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. We won't be using a man like Secretary Kerry that has absolutely no concept of negotiation. He's making a horrible, a laughable deal. He's just being tapped along as they make weapons right now, and then he goes into a bicycle race. at 72 years old, falls, breaks his leg. I'm not I won't be doing that, I'll tell you that. I will never be in a bicycle race, that I can tell you. I will immediately terminate President Obama's illegal executive order on immigration, immediately. Fully support, back up the Second Amendment, rebuild the country's infrastructure, and nobody can do that like me, believe me. It will be done on time, on budget, way below cost, way below what anyone ever thought. Save Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security without cuts, I have to do it renegotiate our foreign trade deals, they're horrible, and strengthen our military and take care of our vets. So, so important. Sadly, the American dream is dead. But if I get elected president, I will bring it back bigger and better and stronger than ever before. And we will make America great again. Thank you. Thank you very much.
3: Jason, I know you prepared quite a lot for that. you watched Trump's yeah. speeches back from the beginning. How did you find that they compared from I then feel, and
6: now? I feel like I have to gargle with Dettol now after doing that. So, so. Um,
3: but they work. They're funny enough, That
6: I was watching that speech today a few times and deciding whether to try and do an impression. I thought, then it becomes a comic thing and it's not funny. You know, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, but at that point, he was relatively... I mean, it's an hour of ramble, but he was relatively articulate. You can see how his mind has frayed since then when you watch him speak since then. At that po- he, he knows what points to hit. He knows exactly what to say. He's given an hour in his you know, palace, and so he, he's kind of rambling. But, but uh, you can see how the mind has lost it since then. He can't finish a sentence. Even when he goes off track, he got back uh, in that speech that we cut. But uh, God, the contrast between that and Obama couldn't be more strong, could it? It's horrifying. So
3: we're going to move on um, to this wonderful next short speech. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about... This and why you included her in your collection. Well, we, actually, we, mentioned,
4: a... we mentioned the Emperor Nero. This is from his reign when um, Nero's example had, could have t- had tainted the whole Roman Empire and the administration of it. And in a distant province, Britannia, um, a king, the king of the Iceni had died, and Nero's um, governors stole the, m- the money that he left and stole the kingdom um, from his widow. Boudicca, Boudiccia, and just to sort of humiliate her a little bit more, they also raped his daughters. And so this led to Boudicca's rebellion. Now, some of these ancient speeches you'll be thinking were written by historians who basically made up the speeches, because we know that very few people heard these speeches. They didn't have microphones and radios, obviously. But actually, Tacitus, who wrote down this speech, new people that were in the Roman armies that may well have spoken to people who heard this speech. And so it is based on a real record, and that was one of the criteria I had when I chose these speeches. I didn't just want speeches from the ancient world that were totally invented. So this is something very much like what she really said in her rebellion, which wiped out a Roman legion. The Romans almost lost Britannia. And it is, I think, one of the great speeches. Not. Not just a female speech, but a, a speech of resistance.
0: It is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging lost freedom, my scourged body, the outraged chastity of my daughters. Roman lust has gone so far that not our very persons, not even age or virginity, are left unpolluted. But heaven, is on the side of a righteous vengeance. A legion which dared to fight has perished. The rest are hiding themselves in their camp or are thinking anxiously of flight. They will not sustain even the din and the shout of so many thousands, much less our charge and our blows. If you weigh well the strength of the armies and the causes of war, you will see that in this battle, you must conquer or die. This is a woman's resolve. As for men, they may live and be slaves.
3: Thank you very much, Natalie. Um, again, another one I'm thrilled made it in and obviously has been in the news a lot recently. You yeah. may have come past some protesters outside following on from her words, but tell us why you put Greta in. Well,
4: I mean, I mean she, obviously she's a remarkable person. I mean, she's, a, she's 16 or 17 she's, and she's taken on this cause, which is the call, one, of the, one of the great causes of our time. I think this speech, this is the speech that made her famous. And it's a good example of um, a speech that has absolute grip, discipline. It doesn't have beautiful phrases, but she knows exactly what she wants to say. It's extremely clear, it's extremely short. So it's everything that a great speech should be. But you saw recently, she's also given a speech recently where you saw what a bad speech is like. Where she spoke at the United Nations and she lost control and she attacked the viewer and blamed everybody else. Do, do you
3: think that was her own speech? Because it was so different that perhaps someone think, had written that for her.
4: No, I think both these speeches are hers. But I think just in one person, you know, we spoke at the beginning of what makes a great speech, and to be positive, you know, she's a very young person. She lost control in one speech and showed how... You know, to give a speech, you have to have absolute clarity, you have to know where you're going to end. You have to have a clear message, and you have to have the discipline of a great actor and the recent speech she gave was, 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 was out of control. This speech, I think, is tremendous and deserves to be in here, and it is a speech that truly changed the world.
5: My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old. I am from Sweden. I speak on behalf of Climate Justice Now. Many people say that Sweden it's just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward in the same bad, with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and the living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there was still time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible, There is no hope. We can't solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within the system are so impossible to find, maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past, and you will ignore us again. We have come here to let you know that change is coming whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you.
3: And now, this Rabin speech, which is perhaps the most powerful.
4: Well, I think, most I think it's a very dangerous thing to be a peacemaker in the Middle East, to take the risk of making peace. And one of the, some of these speeches are particularly touching and poignant because we know what happened afterwards. As you all know, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister, was assassinated for making this speech, for making this, this peace with the Palestinians in 1993 at the Clinton White House. And one of the other touching things about this speech, which is a beautiful speech in its own right, is also the fact that Rabin himself was a man of few words. He was reticent, he was inarticulate, he was rough. He found politics and public life difficult. He was really a soldier. And he took this enormous risk and he found it very difficult. And this is the speech he gave. And
6: when you listen to the words, just remember that it cost him his life. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, this signing of the Israeli-Palestinian declaration of principles here today is not so easy, either for myself as a soldier in Israel's wars, or for the people of Israel nor to the Jewish diaspora, who are watching us now with great hope, mixed with apprehension. It is certainly not easy for the families of the victims of the wars, violence, terror, whose pain will never heal for the many thousands who have defended our lives with their own and even sacrificed their lives for our own. For them, this ceremony has come too late. Today, on the eve of an opportunity for peace and perhaps an end of violence and wars, we remember each and every one of them with everlasting love. We have come from Jerusalem the ancient and eternal capital of the Jewish people. We have come from an anguished and grieving land. We have come from a people, a home, a family that has not known a single year, not a single month, in which mothers have not wept for their sons. We have come to try and put an end to the hostilities so that our children, our children's children, will no longer experience the painful cost of war violence, and terror. We have come to secure their lives and to ease the sorrow and the painful memories of the past, to hope and pray for peace. Let me say to you, the Palestinians, we are destined to live together on the same soil, in the same land. We, the soldiers who have returned from battle stained with blood We who have seen our relatives and friends killed before our eyes. We who have attended their funerals and cannot look into the eyes of their parents. We who have come from a land where parents bury their children. We who have fought against you, the Palestinians. We say to you today, in a loud and clear voice, enough of blood and tears, enough we have no desire for revenge. We harbor no hatred towards you. We, like you, are people who want to build a home, to plant a tree, to love, to live side by side with you in dignity, in empathy, as human beings, as free men. We are today giving peace a chance and saying to you again, enough. Let us pray that a day will come when we all will say farewell to arms. We wish to open a new chapter in the sad book of our lives together, a chapter of mutual recognition, of good neighborliness, of mutual respect, of understanding. We hope to embark on a new era in the history of the Middle East. Today, here in Washington, at the White House, we will begin a new reckoning in relations between peoples, between parents tired of war, between children who will not know war. Our inner strength, our higher moral values have been derived for thousands of years from the book of books, in one of which, Kohelet, we read, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Ladies and gentlemen, the time for peace has come. In the Jewish tradition, it is customary to conclude our prayers with the word Amen. You say Amen, we say Amen. With your permission, men of peace, I shall conclude with words taken from the prayer recited by Jews daily. And whoever of you volunteer, I would ask the entire audience to join me in saying Amen. say shalom who shalom v'yakol yisrael. He maketh peace in his high places, he shall make peace for us and for all of Israel. For Imru, Amen, and they shall say, Amen.
3: Thank you very, very much indeed. And um, we've got two left. And um, this is our last, but one. This f- fabulous speech by Michelle Obama that was she gave to school children. and I don't think she had planned it, or she threw away her plans. No, I mean that, the,
4: the, the wonderful thing about this speech is um, that she came to London to an institute of a a girls' school in London, and she had a speech all written by her office. And when she got there, she ripped it up and gave this speech, which is really about the potential to be whoever you want to be in life. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful message. Thanks, Jane.
1: This is my first trip, my first foreign trip as the First Lady. Can you believe that? And while this is not my first visit to the UK, I have to say that I am glad that this is my first official visit. And I'm honoured to meet you, the future leaders of Great Britain and this world. And although the circumstances of our lives may seem very distant, with me standing here as the First Lady of the United States of America and you just getting through school, I want you to know that we have very much in common. For nothing in my life's path would have predicted that I'd be standing here as the first African-American First Lady of the United States of America. There is nothing in my story that would land me here. I wasn't raised with wealth or resources or any social standing to speak of. I was raised on the south side of Chicago. That's the real part of Chicago. And I was the product of a working class community. My father was a city worker all his life, and my mother was a stay-at-home mum, and she stayed at home to take care of me and my older brother. Neither of them attended university. My dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in the prime of his life. But even as it got harder for him to walk and get dressed in the morning, I saw him struggle more and more. My father never complained about his struggle. He was grateful for what he had. He just woke up a little earlier and worked a little harder. And my brother and I were raised with all that you really need. Love, strong values, and a belief that with a good education and a whole lot of hard work, that there was nothing that we could not do. I am an example of what's possible when girls from the very beginning of their lives are loved and nurtured by the people around them. I was surrounded by extraordinary women in my life. Grandmothers, teachers, aunts, cousins, neighbors, who taught me about quiet strength and dignity. And my mother, the most important role model in my life, who lives with us at the White House and helps to care for our two little daughters, Malia and Sasha, she's an active presence in their lives, as well as mine, and is instilling in them the same values that she taught me and my brother. Things like compassion, and integrity and confidence and perseverance, all of that wrapped up in an unconditional love that only a grandmother can give. I was also fortunate enough to be cherished and encouraged by some strong male role models as well, including my father, my brother, uncles and grandfathers. The men in my life taught me some important things as well. They taught me about what a respectful relationship should look like between men and women. They taught me about what a strong marriage feels like, that it's built on faith and commitment and an admiration for each other's unique gifts. They taught me about what it means to be a father and to raise a family. And not only to invest in your own home, but to reach out and help raise kids in the broader community. And these were the same qualities that I looked for in my own husband, Barack Obama. You are all women who will build the world as it should be you're going to write the next chapter in history, not just for yourselves, but for your generation and generations to come. And that's why getting a good education is so important. That's why all of this that you are going through, the ups and the downs, the teachers that you love and the teachers that you don't, why it's so important. Because communities and countries and ultimately the world are only as strong as the health of their women. And that's important to keep in mind. Part of that health includes an outstanding education. If you want to know the reason why I'm standing here, it's because of education. I never cut class. Sorry, I don't know if anyone is cutting class. I never did it. I loved getting A's. I liked being smart. I liked being on time. I liked getting my work done. I thought being smart was cooler than anything in the world. And you too, with these same values, can control your own destiny. You too can pave the way. You too can realize your dreams, and then your job is to reach back and to help someone just like you do the same thing. History proves that it doesn't matter whether you come from a councillor estate or a country estate. Your success will be determined by your own fortitude, your own confidence, your own individual hard work. That is true. That is the reality of the world that we live in. You now have control over your own destiny. And it won't be easy, that's for sure. But you have everything you need. Everything you need to succeed, you already have, right here. My husband works in this big office. They call it the Oval Office. In the White House, there's the desk that he sits at. It's called the Resolute Desk. It was built by the timber of Her Majesty's ship Resolute and given by Queen Victoria. It's an enduring symbol of the friendship between our two nations. And its name, Resolute, is a reminder of the strength of character that's required not only to lead a country, but to live a life of purpose as well. And I hope in pursuing your dreams, you all remain Resolute. That you go forward without limits and that you use your talents because There are many. We've seen them. It's there that you use them to create the world as it should be because we are counting on you. We are counting on every single one of you to be the very best that you can be because the world is big and it's full of challenges. And we need strong, smart, confident young women to stand up and take the reins. We know you can do it. We love you. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, Jade. And we weren't sure whether to end on a positive uh, or, or sort of exciting speech to leave you all going away feeling joyous, but we, we decided not to. Um, <laughs> we've gone with this extraordinary speech. Tell us, Simon, about well, this. Well, I mean,
4: for those of you who've had a surfeit <laughs> of virtue and, 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 and kindness and goodness, <laughs> Uh, For those of you who are suffocating from woke virtue tonight, um, put your seat belts on. This is something a little different. Um, I think um, this is a fascinating speech. Um, It was reported by the historian Rashad al-Din, who heard it from Genghis Khan's own family. He he was at the court of the the Genghis family. So this was passed down. As was one of great granddad's great sayings that he used to say. And what he used to do, Genghis Khan, um, as he conquered the world, destroying cities, raping women, was um, he would sit around with his top generals and he'd say to them, as they got drunk on yaks, distilled yaks milk, they would say, now, what is your greatest pleasure in the world? And one general would say, hunting um, your majesty. And another one would say, Um, it's drinking and eating, and then they would say, Your Majesty, now his his real name was Temujin, Genghis Khan was his title, it means Lord of the World, and he conquered an empire larger than any other conquered before. And I just want to say that lately historians have discovered by looking at the genetics and DNA of people across Asia, from China all the way through Central Asia um, to Europe, that millions and millions of people now are descended from Genghis Khan himself. And um, that's just worth worth thinking about. And so they would say, Your Majesty, what is your greatest pleasure? And he would always answer just like this. Now Jason is going to try
6: his Mongolian accent to do this. The greatest pleasure and joy for a man is to crush a rebel and to defeat an enemy. Destroy him and take everything he possesses seize his married women and make them weep, ride his fine and beautiful horses, and to fornicate with his beautiful wives and daughters and possess them completely. We'll get you out of the house, is not (laughs) it?
3: That is all we have our time for, but I cannot thank all our fantastic actors enough for coming in and Simon for regaling us and taking us through history. Thank you all very, very much, thank you.
2: This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast was produced and presented by Hannah McInnes and starred Simon Seabag-Montefiore, Jason Isaacs, Jay Danuka, Natalie Emanuel, Papa Essie Adu and Kate Phillips. It was edited by John Doughty. Simon's book, Voices of History, containing all the speeches you heard on this programme, is out now. If you enjoyed this week's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And visit us at howtoacademy.com for an extraordinary variety of live talks, filmed interviews and podcasts guaranteed to reveal new and wonderful ways of thinking. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.